0: this is how this is gonna work. I'm really tired. So I might say something up here is dumb, right? Uh, If I say something up here is dumb, don't listen to it. Uh, But if it's actually helpful for you, then uh, so be it. Uh, The other thing, uh, screen your own questions based on the question of whether or not you'd be mutually edifying for most of the people here, right? Uh, If it doesn't meet that criteria, maybe don't ask it. But if you think that's a good question, that would encourage yourself. As well as the people around you, that's a fair question to ask. Last thing, I might punt it to Ben and Peter if they have something to say. Right. Uh, so, um, with that, any questions? Wait, hang on. Let me set a timer first. Give mic to Jeff. Start with Jeff, and then uh, we'll do Sam after that. And who raised their hand in the back? Joe. Okay. Hang on. I set a timer for like 17 minutes. All right. Go, Jeff.
1: All right. um, So I'm sure, like, for anyone that's been in the church for a good amount of time, uh, as a single person, a lot of times it can feel, like, really discouraging to be single. And you feel, like, an inordinate amount of pressure to get married. Um, I'm really excited to get married, but seeing this is really good. So, John, as a single person, what's your thoughts on how BBC or even just in general, like, how can people, how can married couples, maybe in particular, uh, love single people well?
0: Yeah, uh, I have a whole 45 minute talk already written on this that's supposed to be scheduled in like, I'm not joking, it's supposed to be scheduled some point in an evening gathering in the future. So I'll be able to talk more at length uh, with that. Um, What I would say in general just for singles uh, is that that the period between being single and being married is not an intermediary period where nothing's happening. Right. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, who's the same guy who wrote Ephesians 5 on the glories of marriage and how it reflects the beauty of Christ in the church, seems to say that he prefers that people remain the way he is, which is single. right? Uh, which means that there has to be some kind of advantage or, or opportunity or gift that's received in 1 Corinthians 7 in relation to singleness that you don't get when you're married. Right, uh, So I would say a couple things for married folks. One is that singleness is not permanent, st- like uh, spiritual gift of kind of asexuality. It's a status. Right. Uh, Paul says to each ha- has their gifts. Some are married, some are single, some are so on. His point isn't you have a supernatural gift ordained by God, right? Like if you're married, you're not going to be married forever, right? It's a temporary gift. His point is that whatever season of life you're in, whether you're single or, or dating or or married or widowed, that, that that's a gift from the Lord for you in that unique season, right? And think about the advantages and disadvantages that come from that and make the most of that, right? Um, so uh, I think what would be wrong is if we think of singles exclusively in relation to whatever relationship that they're going to go into or if they desire that, right? I would think first primarily about helping that person grow in the the Lord themselves. And on top of that, you could talk about relationships and other things like that if it comes up. That'd be my super short answer, 45 minute talk incoming at some point. PJ and I both want it to happen, so we're just waiting to schedule it. Yeah, good question. Sam. Yeah, um, For for most of us who, who work like a traditional job, like we're used to having like a 40 hour work week, And there's like a clear demarcation of when work and life are separate. As like a full-time pastor, does that exist at all, or is it just like completely non-existent? That's a good question. Uh, Yes and no. Um, Different pastors will schedule their work week a little differently, right? Um, I'm the type of guy that tends to go into the office at 11:30 and leave at 5:30, Um, personally, give or take like half an hour. Um, Other pastors aren't like that. Like Greg. Never mind, I'm not going to say names because it might end up online. Some people just go to Starbucks and they'll just post up and do their work there. And then they'll leave whenever they feel like their work is done, right? It's a salaried position in that sense. So I would think of pastoral ministry like a spiritual, on-call, salaried job, right? So I want to make sure that I'm using my hours to honor the Lord. I'm accountable to him for that. Uh, I'm also totally open if anyone wants to look at my work week schedule to see how I'm spending my time. I'm not defensive about that. I think that's a good inquiry. right? Uh, the other thing is that there's tons of things that I do that I would normally do as a church member if I didn't have this as my job. But since this is my job, there's kind of like a weird like mixture of this is kind of my job and kind of not my job. right? So if I hang out with you guys for like a dinner or a lunch, it's kind of my job. Uh, it's also kind of not my job. Like, it's it's this weird middle ground, right? Um, so generally what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to do a lot of my discipling. Not that I can't do it during work hours, but I'm going to try to generally protect work hours for things that I can get done that other people can't get done unless they had the freedom to do it. right? That would be my number one priority. After that, I'm happy to disciple other people and do other things with my time. Right? Um, mainly because I want my life and the way I spend my time to model what mature Christian life could look like. Right? So you might not have 40 hours a week to do discipleship. Right? But if I'm able to do that outside of work hours, that would be a helpful model of thinking through how to work through your own schedule as well. Right? Um, so there are some principles I think through. Every pastor does it differently. A PJ's schedule looks different than mine. Right? Uh, my schedule looks different week to week. Yeah. Good question. Uh, Joe and then grace after that. Yes um,
1: How how likely is it to actually get the real John Piper here? (laughs) Um, For for it's been five minutes and I already
0: uh, (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, all of us would be mutually encouraged uh, Yeah from that answer. Johnny pipes has not been traveling very much recently. Okay. All right, sorry How likely is it though? Uh, yeah. That, like, you want a percentage? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah like, yeah, yeah. is it possible? Like, with the Lord, anything's possible. Uh, I mean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joe. All right, Grace. <laughs>
1: um, I don't know if I'm correcting this. You've been for past pastor for over a year now, right? Um, what are some commendations from the church that you've seen growth in during that year? And what are some um, exhortations, like directions you'd like to see the church go in, whether personally for you as a single pastor or as a group?
0: Elders. Yeah, I, I think the last year as a pastor has been more encouraging regarding to you guys and more sobering for me in terms of inadequacy. Uh, so I don't have a ton of criticism. Mainly, like, I think everyone would agree that the last two or three years has just been really hard for everyone. So seeing people endure well has been super encouraging. Yeah. Uh, in terms of stuff to grow in, I, I really don't have a ton of critiques. I mean, Peter, you want to be the bringer of bad news? How do you think our church can grow?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, I, I, w- I would say the reason why I don't have a ton of critiques would be for two reasons. One is that, like, you live life with people. Like, you, you have to do the job of distinguishing whether or not an area of growth is a preference or like a spiritual concern, right? That That's a huge thing when you're living with anybody. Um, and the other thing is that uh, time and the spirit and God's word just has a funny way of helping people grow. So I don't know if like any particular, like if there was a clear sin issue or something I saw happening right now, like I would absolutely say it, but I don't see it. I think our church is actually doing really well. I feel really spoiled when I go to places like Risen this morning, other churches and and talk about how our church is doing not because their church is necessarily worse but just because I I begin to see whenever I step out of our church just how uniquely blessed we've been uh, in the in the last season I guess if there were one thing to like mention offhandedly would be that our church is really weird and we do things in a really unique way and there's tons of blessings and I want to reduce that for a second I want us to be as weird as we are and unabashedly weird that's fine right. Um, At the same time, we should look at other churches that do things differently and be just as gracious with that, right? Uh, We don't want to just excuse kind of our eccentricities and then be critical about others, right? Or assume a position of superiority, right? Uh, The Lord loves those churches. The Lord's doing tons and tons of good there. And uh, I don't think that just because we choose to do it one way, even if we're doing it for good reasons, that that automatically makes whatever we're doing better. Any other questions? Joe, back again. Sorry, another. Uh, um, no, Paul Washer probably won't come here. Uh, <laughs> Mark Dever preached here a couple months ago. That's probably more okay, likely. Okay. 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 Um, Chandler probably won't come here. How, how would you give like a theology of of uh, of doing
1: hobbies and uh, how how do you worship the Lord in your hobbies? Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the same way that you delight in anything, right? Um, you you want to delight in God through those things, right? Uh, so you want to delight in the Lord and worship God in the delight in those things. Sure. So uh, practically, like, how would you play that out? So like with your keyboards, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Like, so how how does that how does that play out practically? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there are all sorts of ways that I could worship God through my keyboard hobby. Yeah. Uh, I, as ridiculous as that sounds. Right. Um, Like, even when you take like, let's say we take really weird hobbies like coin collecting. Right. There's something that you learn about history that you could delight in. There's things about God's creation and humanity and society that you could rejoice in. Really, the challenge with any hobby that we have is doing the hard work of worshiping in everything that we do. Right. Because if really all of life is supposed to be worship. The effort that we need to expend in our hobbies is making sure that we're glorifying God and seeing his goodness in those things, right? And attaching the genuine delight that we have from those hobbies, right? And then giving thanks and glorifying God because of those things, right? So I don't want anyone to feel bad because they enjoy hiking, right? I want them to look at God's creation and delight in that, right? And thank God for that. And the same for mechanical switches, Sure. And how about if you struggle to see the, the, the goodness in it? Yeah, I, I think I, it's very easy for good things to become God things for all sorts of categories, right? Whatever that is, if it becomes obsessive, idolatrous, right, um, uh, occupying more time than it needs to, pulls away from other priorities, right? Um, really, the issue with any kind of form of idolatry isn't necessarily good things in those things, Right, Most sins that we commit have some glimmer of good in them. That's why we're drawn to it. Right? The issue is the disordered heart. Sometimes the things that we're engaging in are just straight up sinful, and we need to not do those things. Right? Oftentimes, the other stuff are good things that we've misprioritized, right? and we prioritize certain things over other things. For that, I don't want to get rid of it altogether, even though that might be good for your soul for a season. It's better to submit those things or subvert them right, to the glory of God. Yeah.
1: Hello? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs>
0: yeah. Sorry. Um,
1: so, basically, what you're saying is uh, practically, it, it's to acknowledge the Lord as you're doing these hobbies, is, is how you would glorify God
0: through it. Yeah. Give thanks to God in those hobbies. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Donna. And who's after Donna? Okay. Jabez. If you ask the question in an email, you can also raise your hand and ask it. And thank you for emailing ahead of time. Yeah.
1: So you guys are kind of aware of like our, one of our hardest trials was like a wedding that we didn't attend. Um, the hardest feelings that I've dealt with with that was feeling self-righteous. Mm. And the hardest question that I had to ask was, do I have the ability or the right to de- determine if someone is Christian or not, even when they say they're Christian? Um, I know I can't determine what's in their heart. And I can't obviously can't determine if someone has salvation or not. But that's what essentially what I was feeling. Um, and a sub, so what, like, so the question is can we determine if someone's Christian or not? With, you know what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. And then, um, sub-question, sub-kind of question underneath that is that, is that part of exercising the keys of the kingdom? PJ already answered, but I want, I think it would be really helpful for the members to also hear an answer from you as well.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure PJ's answer is gonna be better than mine. So, uh, can I, I, I would, I wish I could punt it. Uh, but, Here's what I'll say in brief, right? Uh, The question in terms of discerning whether or not someone is a Christian is a question of function, right? Um, So I don't believe that I have the right to declare someone to be a Christian any more than someone else has the right to declare themselves to be a Christian, right? Um, The analogy that I give would be uh, the Mexico border. So let's say I go to Tijuana, I check out Radius, I come back, right? Get to the border patrol and I'm missing my passport, right? If I'm missing my passport, it doesn't matter who I am as a being, right? I could tell them, hey, I'm a U.S. citizen. In 2006, I was 12. I signed up to get drafted, right? Like, you got to let me in. No matter how true that statement may be, I can't verify that by myself, right? I need a, an embassy or someone else that has the authority to declare myself to be a U.S. citizen, so I either have to go back to the U.S. Embassy in Mexico or the Border Patrol needs to contact someone in authority in order to publicly recognize me as a U.S. citizen to let me in. Right? When we're interacting with people that are claiming or not claiming to be a Christian, uh, we shouldn't really have the need to declare someone to be a Christian or not. That pressure is really not on us. That's the job of the church, right? the local church, in exercising the keys of the kingdom. Right? What we're doing is we're recognizing that authority. Right? Um, for one thing, and saying, "Hey, if you're not part of a church, I cannot positively or negatively affirm your faith, right? I just don't have the jurisdiction to do that." Right? The second thing is that if there is unrepentant sin in someone's life and they're claiming to be a Christian, right? Um, Paul himself says in First Corinthians 5:11, not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. And is sexually immoral or greedy, an, idol- uh, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or swindler? Not have you eat with such a person. Right? So there, he's not talking about whether or not they are a brother or sister, but whether or not they're claiming to be a brother or sister. Right? That there is a degree to which a Christian can look at someone's life and say, okay, if you're claiming to be a Christian and you're unrepentantly living with your girlfriend, right, and engaging in sexual sin there, those two things don't mix. Right or, if you're claiming to be a Christian and you're openly embezzling money for your company, those two things don't mix right and, and it's fine to address that and and make an action or change your behavior in light of that that'll be That'll be kind of my short answer yeah. Hope that helps all right, who is after Dinah Jabez
1: and John um, thank you for doing this. Uh, I know you've been thinking about. Um, the immigrant church and like first gen and second gen issues and so i was wondering if you could give like a really quick cliff notes on some of the thoughts that you've been having as you're thinking about the topic
0: yeah everything i think has been written and published on nine marks you could okay. go read it there got it thank you <laughs> really? it? Uh, in short uh what i would say is number one uh i love the immigrant church and so should you um any kind of quibbles that you might have with their formulation or their structure didn't come because they wanted to become a mega church. It came because they love their families, right? So it's important to recognize that and recognize the sacrifice that so many of them took. I think it's a super self-sacrificial and loving thing, right, to move into an unknown land to care for your children or to seek a better life for your family. I think that's amazing. I just want to, like, affirm that as a good, beautiful thing. Secondly, the desire to worship together in your mother tongue is not a simple desire at all, right? That's awesome. I want to affirm that. And also the desire to gospelize your kids and see them come to faith and be able to speak to them the gospel in their language and way that they understand. Also beautiful and sacrificial thing. What a humble thing to say, hey, I'm not the one best suited to communicate with my son or my daughter in a way that they would fully understand. I want to equip them and resource them in a way that they can understand it. That's a beautiful thing. So I just want to laud as much encouragement there as I can. Uh, The other side of it is that there are unique kind of structural issues with the immigrant church in terms of having groups that are meeting in separate areas with different languages and being part of one kind of church structure. And and what I'm really trying to help uh, thoughts on is viewing that primarily not as a cultural problem, but actually as a biblical ecclesiological problem. That the church belongs to God and Jesus has instructed us in the word as to how how the church should be structured. Then we need to take those principles and what the Bible teaches and do the hard work of applying it to a really unique, difficult situation. So that's really what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Last question. Okay. Uh, All right. Let's just take a show of hands. Who's cool with going a little bit over time? All right. If you got to leave early, that's fine. All right. uh, Josh Kim, and then we'll just work our way down. So we'll go. Uh, Josh Kim in the back, Adele, Rachel, and then T.P. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. That's it. Okay. Uh, 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 something I've been wrestling with uh, the past
1: few weeks is um, how do we minister to people in our lives who have brain disorders um, that make it difficult to have a conversation with? Um or impossible even. Um, yeah, that's just something
0: I've been struggling with the past few weeks. Mm. That's a super hard question. Um, I think one of the things that uh, mental illness and different disorders and even disabilities ex- expose is our own lack of ability. Right, you just get confronted with the fact that you just can't do all the things that you wish that you could, right? Whether it's having a, a a complete conversation where you can communicate things in a way that they understand, right, or or even being capable to meet all the needs that you know that they have, right? I think it's a super humbling and difficult position to be in. Um, so I I think two things to encourage you when you're in that situation. One is that the Lord knows. Right? Uh, I think that there's a temptation uh, when we care for people that we know that we're, we're ill-equipped to care for, uh, is to constantly have a nagging feeling like you could do more, right? Or that you could try harder or you could be pressing more to try to accomplish something. And uh, I just want to relieve you of that. The Lord knows their needs. The Lord loves them. And the Lord's going to care for them. Right? So, so we want to be faithful and care for them the best that we can. Right? But we shouldn't have the pressure to accomplish something that God might not intend for us to accomplish. Right? Uh, uh, the second thing is that uh, the, the stuff that you do is not in vain. If you're having gospel conversations with them or if you're trying to show them Christ's love, that's not in vain. And one of the things that was really encouraging for me uh, as I meditated on Hebrews, um, Hebrews 8 was, was that verse again, Jeremiah 31, about how we won't have to exhort each other to say, know the Lord, but they will all know me from the least to the greatest, right? From the least to the greatest. I think that there's something there that does apply even to people that we're not sure of, like maybe they have mental illness. We're not sure if they're fully grasping everything that we'd like them to grasp, or, or we feel like there's blocks there, Right. We want to keep administering Christ to them and loving them well, but you could rest in this, right? That their salvation doesn't even depend on their own capability, right? But that the Lord desires to save them, he can do it, right? Uh, and, and praying and seeking after that. Uh, does that help? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the question. Adele. Mike to Adele. Um. Oh, she has a mic. Hi.
1: My question is, are there principles that um, in thinking about tithes and offerings, specifically when someone is in the season of being a student and for a long time where there's no income?
0: Yeah, Uh, are you going to be making any money? No. Don't give. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, uh, uh, that's that's a pretty easy answer. Um, In the sense that like a tithe is not a quota, right? Um, a tithe is really an expression of a heart disposition. right? Uh, the reason why we talk about giving and why we're so free to talk about it here at this church is because, to be frank, like, people know where their hearts are at without needing to really address it. right? You, you know deep down if you're just being complacent and you know that you should be giving more. right? Um, there are times where people's consciences go one of two ways where they're hardening their conscience or their conscience is too sensitive. Pastorally, I want to help address that. Um, but yeah, uh, I, w- I would say that if you're not making any money, you can give to the church in all sorts of ways. You can give it your time, give it your service, give it your disposition, and you're going to be a doctor. Uh, just give a lot once you work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the joys that I've had uh, now that I'm working full time is being able to pay for meals for people that are pursuing the ministry that are able to afford things all the time, right? I have the position with resources to be generous towards those who lack, right? And and for and for me a lot of my life when I was studying and not working was defined by receiving generosity. I mean, so many of you helped pay for my education. Right. Um, my education at Cal Baptist, uh, the Bratchers housed me literally, like let me crash at their place every week. Um, and now I, in turn, get to be hospitable and generous and care for people on the flip end. Right. Um, so, so don't be bashful in receiving blessing and receiving generosity. Right. I would just encourage you that when you're in the position to be generous, that then outpour all that blessing that you received right back. Right. Uh, I think the Lord would delight in that. Yeah. Rachel. Mike to Rachel.
1: How can we encourage uh, members of our church who are considering long-term missions?
0: Yeah, uh, long-term missions, we have uh, missions kind of two weeks in December where we talk about it every year. Uh, If you notice in the back of our membership directory, we have a list of members that are considering long-term missions. We want that list to be regularly updated and growing. We would love for people to be considering long-term missions. Um, We could probably be doing a better job of creating some kind of pipeline or runway for people that are ready to go. It's probably something that we need to work on as a church. Uh, That could be one area that you could be praying that we grow in that. Yeah. Good question. DP.
1: So 1 Timothy 5, 1a says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Um, I was wondering if you could very quickly try and exegete this text, because just thinking about family relations, particularly in like my own family conflicts, I think this is kind of a verse that's in the air throughout those. Um, It seems like on the most extreme ends, like, Perhaps Eastern culture, there's like this stone wall between younger people and their elders where they're just untouchable and you can't say anything, which is, feels, I think, is wrong, I would sense. On the other side, like the extreme of maybe Western culture would be like a flattening of all elder versus younger dynamics, which I also feel like is wrong. So I don't know what the balance is. And I, yeah, so maybe if you could talk about that. Um, Specifically in this text, I guess it says rebuke versus exhortation, I think. Yeah. Or encouraging.
0: So. Yeah, how old are you? 25. I'm 26, don't you dare rebuke me. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't think that's what the verse is saying there. Um, I, I think you're also right in identifying kind of the two pitfalls that you could fall into. Um, I, I think Eastern culture at times can get kind of overly, kind of almost like creating different castes in relation to age. Um, and different cultures do it in greater and lesser degrees. I was thinking that Western society almost like dis- looks at elderly with disdain if I'm being honest uh and tends to do a poor job of honoring those that are older um so so we want to avoid both those pitfalls the reason why uh Timi- uh paul exhorts timothy to exhort him as a father here and then younger men as brothers older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters with all purity right is really kind of he's appealing to hit timothy's intuition of family right um as in the reason why he's using the analogy of family there is because to a degree, it should be something that we intuitively understand, right? There are certain kind of cultural dynamics, right, to which the way that we interact with even our own family members or other people we're really close to in the various kind of age, kind of strata, that we're supposed to treat them and love them in light of that, right? so I remember coming to this church and a lot of the elderly, older members of this church treated me like I was their homie, right? Like they just shared stuff about their life, treated me like equals, right? Like if you come to a Wednesday morning Bible study, you hang out with them. You're just, it's impossible to be intimidated around them. They're just so caring, loving, goofy. You know, Carrie keeps asking me about dinosaurs every class and trying to get me an answer, right? Um, it, it's easy to love them well. Right? I, I don't really have to be super concerned about how to honor them right? um, like a grandfather or as a father per se. Right? I don't feel that pressure. Culturally, it's a lot easier for me. Uh, if I step into my father's church, the way that I'm going to love and respect and show honor um, to the elderly members there is going to look vastly different. Right? And that's actually okay and good. It's good that it's different. Right? Uh, that's not inherently better uh, or worse just because it's different. It means that the way that they receive and communicate love is different than what I may intuitively understand to do. Right. So so what I'm going to endeavor to do is be all things to all people that I might win some. Right. Uh, I'm going to try to figure out what looks most loving to them and interact with them in light of that strata. Right? Notice, and notice here in 1 Timothy 5 that he says, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him. Right? But exhort him. So, so what Paul isn't telling Timothy is, hey, if you interact with an older person you see sin in their life, just shut up. Right? Like, don't say a single word. Don't you dare cross that line. He's saying, be strategic. Right? View, them like, view them like family and love them in light of that. Right? What's up, Robert? Good to see you, bro. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you're good, man. Uh, so you want, you want to love them as family, right? Whether they're older or younger, right? Um, and so one of the things that I talk about a lot, especially in Asian cultures is leading from below, right? Leading from below. Um, there are times where I'll walk into a room and I just know that like I'm the runt of litter in whatever conversation I'm gonna be in, right? That even if I might see certain things more correct than other people do, right? That they're gonna look at me And the first thing that's gonna come out of their mouth is like, now, how old are you again? You know, like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe, you know. uh, I've had that conversation a gajillion times, right? Uh, I am more impressed by their patience with me, (laughs) if I'm being honest, right? And kind of my rambunctious kind of running around and and being a cocky young person who thinks I have everything figured out. Um, If I want to exhort those people, it's gonna look like gentle suggestions, right? And almost trying to inset their mind with different thoughts and ideas. Sometimes we think that just because we have something right, that we can then just kind of buck heads with people, put all our cards on the table and say, this is what I think you can disagree with me what I want, but I'm going to love you. Which does like two things. One, it puts us in a position where we think that we're right objectively. And secondly, it almost places us in a position of moral superiority. Like this is what I think, and I'm gonna be patient with you, right? Aren't you so grateful for that? You know? uh, and I don't think that's the right approach at all. Right? There's a way that you can be winsome and gentle and encouraging without being abrasive to who they are, right? Most people are smart enough to connect the dots, right? When you exhort them or when you make suggestions. Sometimes, especially in Eastern cultures, you need to approach it in a way that helps them save face while still learning, right? And for me, I couldn't care less about being right. I just want to see them grow, right? And that's a disposition that Paul's really exhorting Timothy to have, right? Care less about you being right or putting them down, right? Just because you're correct, right? But love them like a family member, right? I don't want to embarrass my dad or my mom and my interactions with them. I want them to feel honored even as I'm correcting them, right? And so that's going to look different at every culture. And that's why we need wisdom in order to apply those principles well. Yeah. Great question. That's all the time that we have. Let me pray for us and we can get into communion. Lord, I pray that if any of my answers stink, that people will forget about it immediately. Uh, And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in wisdom. We need your help in order to be wise as we interact with others. Pray that you would give us the grace to be able to do that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.